morning. Ha <laughs> ha. Oh, you ever just have one of those days where it's like, ha ha. No, you never had a ha ha day. Oh, I'm having one. I'm having one. We're glad you're here. You have just, you've just stepped into church. <laughs> Some of you are like, I know. No, 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 no. Let me explain. Like you have stepped into church. Here's what church is supposed to be about. Jesus. That's it. That's it. Listen, we're singing this song at the end. That last song, A Living Hope, whole night. You know why we connect with that song so much? And there's something in you as you're singing it that's just rising up. Like I get to one part of it and I just can't help but start jumping. Because I'm like, this is, what he, this is our salvation story in this song. And so it, for those of us who have, who have stepped into this relationship with Jesus and we're singing about it, we're going, that's it. No, that's it. That's really it. That's that. And we're, whoo, and that's what it is. Jesus. It's just Jesus. And so you've come into a place where we just love Jesus. We're not apologizing for that. Um, he is the son of God who did a whole heck of a lot for us. And so we're excited about Jesus. And so uh, we're going to talk a lot about Jesus around here because if what's inside comes out, then we just want Jesus to come out because he's inside. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I had the privilege of introducing you to two of my really, really close friends in the world, Jason and Eric Schroeder. Uh, this morning, uh, two weeks late, Eric LaRue shows up. Uh, this, is a, this is one of my really close friends, Eric, if you could just say hi to everybody. Um, Eric is here with his wife, Tara. They're going to be speaking tonight at our marriage event. I'm super excited about that. Over 150 couples coming tonight in here. Awesome, right? So anyway, talk about Jesus. Maybe the, the best way to illustrate this, let me do it this way, um, is, okay, some of you got a little bit excited, and then you just went, mmm, no, no. And there's a reason for that. Like, there's really a deep reason to why you got really disappointed when you saw the front of this. And, and here, here's what it is. I want to explain this to you, okay? Because it's going to help us understand what we're talking about today in light of Oreos, okay? The depth of Jesus in light of Oreos. Isn't this fun? You, you see this and you're like, hmm, yeah, no, we're going to... Like that. It's just like, why? Why? Because you have experienced and enjoy... Oreos. Right? And some of you are going, well, no, I haven't. Well, that's because there's just something broken. <laughs> and don't be offended by that. There's a lot of brokenness in our world today. And it just, it's, but I'm talking to the people that, that have re really enjoy an Oreo, right? When, when this comes out at a party, and, and maybe you're talking and you don't, you're not paying attention because we'll have these moments. Most of the time, we notice. Don't think we don't notice the counterfeit sitting in the room, Right? <laughs> We smell that crap. But sometimes you're at a party and you're talking, you don't notice, and you see the cookie that looks like an Oreo, and you grab it, and you bite into it, and the moment you bite, you know. Come on, how many of you, I'm living your world right here, you know, you bite that sucker, and you go, oh. Like, you refuse to even chew it. Like, you know that if you even start to chew it, the disappointment begins, it already started. You're disappointed that it's even in your mouth. And so you're just like, and, and you won't, you won't, if you're, if you really understand the goodness of an Oreo and you bite into something like that, you go and you throw it away. Am I right? Because there's just something about the real thing 
Some of you already, you can preach this sermon already. You're just like, I know where you're going. No, you don't. You do not know where I am going. Because I grew up with these things, and we would take them apart, and then you'd stack them together, or you would cut the, the cream out and put the cream. And I know it's Crisco and powdered sugar. Stop telling me that. I don't care. It's good. Right? And so you just, and then in 1975, Nineteen seventy-five, Oreo went to a whole nother level, right? Because they saw they saw the dilemma of having to take these things apart and put them together to really experience the goodness. Now, generic stuff can't do that because you don't want a bunch of crap stacked on top of each other, right? Generic stuff can't make it better because it's not good to begin with. So you might think it is, but it isn't. When it's good, the good just keeps getting gooder. Don't crack my English, right? And so then you take these babies apart and you put these together and it's like, woo, until 2013. Mega stuff. (laughs) Some of you are like, are you going to preach on anything about Jesus? I'm talking about Jesus right now. You don't even know it. You don't even know it. Because with Jesus, you, you haven't even hit. You haven't even begun to experience the goodness of the God we serve. And he has the ability, because of his infancy, to just keep getting better. But let's go back to the Oreos. Because when it came to this, it was like, oh, man, mega stuff. And so you take those babies out, and it was just like heavenly and you could, you could pull those apart, and you put that together, and it was like, woo, right? And you're not even thinking about that anymore until 2019. <laughs> Come on. Some of you are going, I didn't know. <laughs> Nobody told me. <laughs> the most stuff. Most cream ever. <laughs> Seriously. So, and, and look at this. They don't even like put it together. You just, you just pull these out of the thing and it's just like, you can just take this, it just, it just peels off. It just, I mean, I mean, and, and somebody said to me first service and I get it. The difference between Jesus and Oreos is Jesus is good for you. True, I understand. And you can pull this thing apart in all kinds of different ways. But the point, here's the point, here's the point. When it comes to who Jesus is and what Jesus is, he just keeps getting better. I I can't imagine what 2000 and something else it's going to be. Like, is it going to be a wafer between the two creams? I mean, right? Like, the wafer is in prison. It's like... Closed up, and we're just like, somebody's like, that'd be messy. I'm like, Oreo people don't care. It's not even a thought. And so as we, I've taken a really long time with this, I, and I understand. But, but we're going to utilize this the whole morning, and then you will never look at Oreos the same. And you'll look at this kind of a thing when you show up at a party and go, really? Because I'm not living that life anymore. Right? And here, here's the problem. In our spiritual journey, See, we, we rarely will accept counterfeit in most of our life, but on our spiritual journey, we are living in counterfeits. 
In some areas, we've experienced the goodness and greatness of an incredible God who just keeps on giving good things. And man, you can't get enough. Matter of fact, you'll have all of God you actually want, which means you'll spend an eternity getting to know how, how good this is. But some of us have been tricked into thinking that this is good, that the counterfeit is good, that outside of Jesus, I can have happiness. And I'm telling you, Jesus is about to remind us through this letter to the church of Pergamum, that that's not true. And so as we process this morning, now they did tell me after this time to take these down because all you could see when you look through the camera is Oreos, which is fine if you're an Oreo person. So I'll put these over here because I really want to draw the fact that these are better, way better than this. Okay, and so I'll keep doing that throughout. But we're in this series called Not That Church, Living Faithful in a Culture of Compromise. And we do live in a culture of compromise. When it comes to the truth of who God is and what God is about and what he wants for our lives, we live in compromise. And not just the world that we live in, but the church. The church lives in compromise. And that's Jesus' greatest concern when he's talking to the church. So we're in the seven churches of Revelation. Some people don't like to crack the book of Revelation, but we're cracking the book of Revelation. We're going to go through the seven churches. And the seven churches were seven actual churches uh, back in 90 AD that John writes this letter. It's a revelation of Jesus to seven churches, seven actual churches in the province of Asia, which was ruled by the Romans at the time. And the seven churches had access to all the rest of the churches that the church had planted from that time. And so these letters wouldn't go just to the seven, but to all those churches. And it would go thousands of years forward to us. And so not only were these letters to the churches, the seven churches of Asia Minor, but they are letters to us. And Jesus would be trying to communicate something to us today through the same letters or they wouldn't be here. So they're given to John. Uh, John was a disciple of Jesus. Uh, John is in his last years of life. He's on the Isle of Patmos. They actually tried to kill John by boiling him in a pot of oil. And they didn't succeed. I'm, I'm not sure. I, evidently, God had a plan for John. He had something he wanted to tell him to tell us. And so he's on the Isle of Patmos, and he's in Sunday morning worship. That's what the Bible says in the first chapter. And like a loud trumpet noise, Jesus talks to him. And that had to scare him to death. When I get to heaven, I'm going to write that movie. Show me what John did when you showed up and went, hey, in Revelation. That would have been cool. So it's, it's John writing this book to seven churches, actual churches in the province from Jesus, but our filter as we listen to these letters that Jesus is writing to the seven churches because they apply to us, our filter has to be, and there is a filter because a lot of times in church what we will do, and I need you to get this because this is, this is probably the dilemma of the church, is we'll come into church and the worship's great and we'll get to the sermon and the way in which we hear and receive the sermon is you're a bad person and God's really mad at you and so you should go fix it. And that is not what it's about. That is not even what God is trying to do. And I don't want us to live in that. That is guilt and condemnation, and there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ. When we hear about this, when we hear Jesus highlighting what might be wrong, we, I, what I want you to really hear is what might be missing. As you hear this letter, what might we declare that is true about us that may not have been true about the church in Pergamum? But if we will listen to Jesus and we will follow what he says, we will not be that church. And so last week, we hit the church in Ephesus, a letter to the church in Ephesus. The second letter is to the church in Smyrna. We're going to skip that one. That one's going to go at the end. So those of you who looked at that this week, that'll be at the end. There's a reason it's at the end. So we're going to move ahead to the church, the letter to the church in Pergamum. And last week, the church in Ephesus, basically Jesus was saying to the church in Ephesus, listen, you guys do a lot of really cool Christian things, but you're not real loving. 
You do a lot of great things. You're really religious, and, and that's good. There's some really good things in that. But you just, you've lost your first love. You don't love me like you used to. You don't love each other like you used to. And you don't love the world like you used to. And if they're going to know you by the way you love each other, and they're going to see me in that, you're not loving. And so here's what he says. If you don't repent and you don't change, meaning if you don't remember what your love once was like for me, if you don't repent of that, change the way you're thinking, reclaim that relationship, that love for me, that love for each other, that love for the world, then Jesus said, I'm going to come and take your lampstand away. And the lampstand was the, the symbol of the church. He said, I'm going to come and take your church. You won't be a church. And what I want you to understand by that is God won't tolerate a church that does not lead with love. He won't tolerate a church that doesn't. So we said, we're going to be a loving church. We declare that we will be a loving church. And we will be known for our Jesus love. Today we're talking about the church in Pergamum. And so if Jesus was saying to the church in Ephesus that you've lost your first love, here's what he's saying to the church in Pergamum, just an overarching thought. He's saying, you guys are getting your cue, how you decide to live. You're getting your cue from the world and culture instead of from me. You're listening to the wrong voices. You're believing the wrong things. You're compromising. You're, you're settling for the fake. And I've promised you, more than you could ever imagine. It just doesn't stop. And so we go to Revelation chapter two. If you'll stand with me, we stand in these moments because for us, the word of God is life and there is nothing that will be more important this morning than these words that we will read. And in Revelations, it says he is blessed who hears them and reads them. And so we are going to read them. Starting in verse 12 of chapter two, the message to the church in Pergamum. Write this letter, Jesus is saying to John, to the angel of the church in Pergamum. This is the message from the one with the sharp two-edged sword. Now, you need to understand in verse chapter 1, Jesus described himself as the sharp two-edged sword. The thing in which he's using to describe himself at the beginning of the letter is always the thing that he uses in which he will judge at the end of the letter. And when he says a sharp two-edged sword, we can go back to Hebrews chapter 4, where it says the word of God is active and alive, sharper than a double-edged sword. So that's Jesus speaking. I know, he says, that you live in a city where Satan has his throne, yet you have remained loyal to me. You refuse to deny me even when Antipas, notice he calls him by name, Jesus is watching all the time. Even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. But I have a few complaints against you. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam, who showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly. That's, that's, that's the heart of a father, by the way. I'm not going to let this go very long because I love you way too much. And, the, and I will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. Remember, he's talking to the church, not people outside the church. Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what he is saying to the churches. Guys, we only know who we are and how to live and actually live by the power of the Holy Spirit, not on our own strength. To everyone who is victorious will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven, and I will give to you each one a white stone, and on the stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Jesus, in these moments, I pray that these words will penetrate our hearts, that we will open our hearts, we will open our ears, we will open our minds 
to receive what you want to say. If anything comes across that is, is my words and not your words, may they fall on deaf ears. But may every word that is yours not just get to our ears, but to our hearts. And may they transform us from the inside out by the renewing of our minds. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Have a seat. That's set in love. Um, some background, and I think it's important to get some background on the churches, and it's actually quite fascinating to understand when Jesus is writing this letter to the Pergamum church, what that was like. And so I want to give us some background, and I want to start by again highlighting this piece of I know. He starts every letter with I know. Jesus knows. He wants us to know that he knows. And so you need to understand that he knows all of it. He knows everything. Every one of you sitting in this room, he knows everything about you. He knows the good and he knows the bad. He knows what you think. He knows what you want to think. He knows what you're going to do before you do it. He goes to the deepest places of your heart and he knows your secrets. He knows it all. And so he's trying to tell you, you can hide it, but you can't hide it. Because I know. And I want you to know that even the good stuff, I know. And I'm saying, I love that. But there's other things where I'm saying, I know where you've settled for counterfeit over the real. He just wants you to know that he knows. He knows enough to tell us what are the assets and liabilities of our lives. He knows enough and loves us enough to step in and say, I see some good and I see some bad. And he loves us enough as a church to do the same thing. He says, wow, I love this about you. This is amazing. You have listened. You have surrendered. You are experiencing life. You are enjoying the cookies. But he's saying, over here, this, this is going to cost you. This choice, this spirit, this heart, this attitude, this action, this is going to cost you. And sin will always cost you, take you further than you want to go and cost you more than you're willing to pay. Always. Whether it's your marriage, whether it's you as an individual, whether it's the community in which you live, whether it's the church, it will cost. What will it cost this church that God has asked us to do if we spend more time following the counterfeit than following Jesus? Believing that this is good when this is actually a lie and a mirage of what's really good. It's kind of like parenting. I, I want to use this example because, again, I'm trying to give you enough things to process this because we have been raised in a church culture that would love you to feel like you're bad. Like, man, you are so pathetic, and you just really need this God. Uh, that might be true, but that's not how God sees you and interacts with you, and that's been our problem. We have this view of God like he's always upset with us, and he's always mad at us. Let me help you understand. God, my kids, I have, I have, I have four kids. They're all perfect. There's nothing that they do wrong. Um, <laughs> I know, right? We're laughing. That's actually not true. They actually do, do a lot of things that I wish they wouldn't do. And so as a parent, when they do something wrong, I'll give you an example, like when they lie. Um, as a parent, uh, if you're a good parent, what you won't do is, man, you're such a liar. Why are you lying all the time? Like, I catch you lying all the time. Liar, liar, pants on fire. That's what you are. Nobody's going to want to be a friend with you. You're not even a good friend because you're a liar. <laughs> liar, liar, liar. And the kid walks away going, ha. I'm a liar. That's my identity. And yet, we think that's how God talks to us, and he's a better parent than we are, and we would never do that. What we say to our kids is, listen, 
you're lying. And I just want you to know that lying is destructive, that the enemy will use that to destroy you, but God has something better. There is so much potential in you that truth will release, but lying will destroy. And I want you to live into the future. I want you to flourish as a human being, but lying will destroy you. Don't choose lying. Choose truth. That is the nature and heart of God when it comes to our faith. Anything else is the devil. So Pergamum was a city in modern-day Turkey, known now as uh, Bergama. It was about 50 miles outside of Smyrna and probably the third um, stop on the journey. And, and so if we were doing this uh, in order, the, the letter would have left Patmos. It would have gone to Ephesus, and then it would have gone to Smyrna, and then it would get to uh, Pergamum. And so Pergamum is the third stop. And why is this important? Because I want you to understand and have drilled into your heads and hearts that these are real places in the ancient world. These are real. This is history. So it's incredibly important. In the first century, Pergamum had a population of about a quarter million. And they were incredibly proud people. They were very proud. Um, probably don't have that problem today, do we? <laughs> Here's why they were proud. Pergamum was the Roman capital of the entire province of Asia. And it actually had been a capital city for over 400 years under other empires. So the generations raised up in this community were a proud generation, a proud people. They were a proud people because Pergamum was a really beautiful city. Matter of fact, if you were talking to people from other cities, you would always be saying, we're the most beautiful. Like, we're the best city. We're the most beautiful. Um, it sat about 15 miles from the Mediterranean. So on a clear day, you could see from Pergamum, the Mediterranean. I mean, it was a beautiful city. And it was known as the most beautiful of all Asia. The third source of the city's pride would be the fact that unlike Ephesus and Smyrna that were port cities, um, they were known all over the world as the center of culture, meaning they were cool. This was the cool city, Pergamum. Beautiful buildings, a theater that sat 3,500 people in that day. That's a big deal. The second largest library in the world with 200,000 books, only second to the library in Alexandria at the time. But bigger than all of that, Pergamum was also the center of pagan worship, over 50 altars to different gods besides the god. They boasted of having four great temples. They had a temple dedicated to Dionysus, the god of wine and drama. They had one for Athena, the goddess of wisdom in art and war. They had one for the god of healing. I can't pronounce his name. But they had a massive idol built to the Greek god Zeus. And it was so massive, it was built on a hill overlooking the city. And it was referred to as Zeus's throne. And it was four stories high and about four times the size of the seat that Lincoln sits on at the Lincoln Memorial. And many believe in Zeus's throne. It's Zeus's throne that Jesus is referring to in verse 13 when he calls it the throne of Satan. Jesus was alluding, though... I think, to the fact that the first century Pergamum was the center of emperor worship in that part of the world. And so they worshiped the past emperor. So if you were an emperor and you died, they would enshrine you, and the, the people would worship the emperor as one of their gods. And most of the cities throughout Rome would only worship one or two times a year the emperor, but Pergamum made its people worship 365 days a year. And not just past emperors, but Domitian, who was the current emperor, was so prideful that he made people worship him before he died. And so you have a living emperor that is forcing people to worship him, and that's going to be an even greater strain. And so the Jews were free of that, but the Christians were not. And so if you didn't worship the emperor, you were killed or you were persecuted. This could be what 
would make them feel like in this city, Satan himself is calling the shots. Thus, Satan's city, if you will, the place of his throne. Do you ever think that way about our culture, that Satan is having his way more often than not? And some of us would be like, well, yeah, but isn't Satan in hell and isn't he locked up there? No, not yet. He's actually called the God of this age. He walks this planet, directing all of the sources of evil and immorality. And at the top of his list, of his to-do list, every day is to drag believers away from faith in Jesus. Present the counterfeit. And I think Jesus' sister going, I, I mean, it's not even a good counterfeit. But he has so lied to us that we're convinced it is. Yeah, Satan is defeated. Jesus did that when he walked out of his tomb on Easter Sunday. Defeated, death, hell, and the grave. But in the same way a mortally wounded animal is dangerous, so is the devil. The enemy of our soul. I know what you're thinking. What a crazy place for a church. Right? What a crazy place for a church. A city full of people too proud to think they need Jesus. You, you know why we laugh in that moment? Is because that's us. It's the culture that we live in today. Like it or not. It's obvious. Why a church here? Why a church in Pergamum? Why a church in Lake Zurich? Because God loves all people. We've said this so many times. I hope you say it over and over when you're talking to people about your God, that every person your physical eye sees is deeply loved by God. Deeply loved by God. And so why is there a church there? Because God loves all people. But let me hear this. God's love of all people doesn't mean that all things are acceptable. And we need to understand that there is still wrong and there is still right. There is still truth and there is still lie. And just because God loves us doesn't mean that he agrees with everything that's being said and going on. Let's not misinterpret the fact that we need to lead with love, that we're accepting everything. Why put them there? Why put the church in Pergamum where persecution is going to happen and they're going to be killed for their faith? It's where God wanted them. It's where he needed them. Let me say it to you like this. God has put you where you are because it's exactly where he needs you. Some of you are like, I've been trying to get out of where I am for years. Don't tell me this. Nope, I'm telling you, God has placed you where he needs you. No matter what. No matter what the neighbors are like. No matter what the coworkers are like. No matter what the parents on the sports team are like, God has placed you right where he needs you and wants you. And God has placed us as a church right where he needs us and wants us. And the same is true with Pergamum. And so he says, I know. I know. I get what's going on. And I get how difficult. Here's what I know. And he says this, verse 13. I know that you live in the city where Satan has his throne. I know. Yet you've remained loyal to me. I know. You refuse to deny me, even when Antipas, my faithful witness, was martyred among you there in Satan's city. Now, Antipas was seared to death inside of a huge brass bull, B-U-L-L, because he refused to renounce Jesus and worship the emperor. And Jesus is going, I know. I saw it. The Pergamum church was made up of courageous believers like Antipas who refused to give up their faith in Jesus even though that might mean persecution that leads to death. Again, we're not far from all of that in the church in America. 
Did you know that more people have been killed for the cause of Christ in this century than the first 19 centuries combined? And we sit in this bubble thinking that it will never come. They refused to deny Jesus. If you unpack that, it simply means they had a firm grip that would never let go. They refused to budge when it came to their faith that Jesus is who he says he is and will do what he says he's going to do. They had met the real Jesus. They had experienced him in their daily life, and as a result, they refused to deny him. They're going, we've experienced Jesus, and he is way better than anything that could ever be. And so we refuse to go back to that. They had met the real Jesus. Why? Because Jesus was the only one who defeated death and was therefore qualified to promise them eternal life. And not just eternal life, but abundant life. Basically, simply put, Jesus saying, I will meet every need. You put me first, I will take care of the rest. I am the bread of life. He said to the woman at the well, you will never thirst again. You put your hope and faith and trust in me, and I will take care of you. What seems to be the thing you want and need, you'll never want again because you've got it in me. And so he says to his disciples in John chapter 6, he says, listen, here's how it works. If you want to follow me, I have to be your source. I need to be the only thing that you're worshiping, the only thing you're looking to, the only thing that you trust, the only thing that you count on. And the Bible says that almost all of his disciples left. And he looks at the 12 who are still standing there going, and he says, are you going to leave too? And Peter looks at him and he says, where else would we go? You hold the words to eternal life. And we know some years later, Peter would hang upside down on the cross for his faith. Oh, these were people of courage who had experienced the real Jesus. And because of that, they're never the same. What do we learn from this? Like the Pergamum church believers, followers of Jesus, we get our strength and courage from Jesus that allows us to face anything in this world without fear anything. What an asset for a church to have, huh? A bunch of bold, crazy people because their trust in Jesus has them. A church full of believers who are fearless and bold in the face of anything life throws at them. So Jesus is saying to the church of Pergamum, I know, I know you're in a difficult place. I know that you're being opposed politically and spiritually, that you're suffering, and at least one member of your church has been martyred. I know. Just rest in the fact that he knows. And then he says, here's my complaint against you. Here's my complaint. I have a few complaints. You tolerate some among you whose teaching is like that of Balaam and showed Balak how to trip up the people of Israel. He taught them to sin by eating food offered to idols and by committing sexual sin. In a similar way, you have some Nicolaitans among you who follow the same teaching. Jesus, here's what Jesus said. He said, hey, great job with the attacks from the outside. You guys are killing it. But the attacks from the inside, not so well. He's talking to the church, what's coming in the church. He's saying you tolerate people who teach false things. You're not calling them out. Specifically, people who embrace the teaching of Balaam and the Nicolaitans. What were their teaching? you got to hear this. It's important for you to get this. So let me real quickly wrap this in for you. What did Balaam and the Nicolaitans teach, and how does that apply to us? According to the book of Numbers, when Balak, a Moabite king, heard about the victories of the Hebrew people as they journeyed from Egypt on their way to the Promised Land, 
When Balak heard the Hebrews were headed his way, he goes to a prophet named Balaam, who is a false prophet. He's not a good guy. And he says, listen, I need you to come, and I need you to curse the Israelites when they get here. And so Balaam goes, that's fine, I'll do it. And so he gets on his donkey, and he's headed to meet the Israelites, and an angel of the Lord stops him in his path. I love this. And it says that Balaam asked forgiveness and decided, I'll just go home. Can you imagine? He's headed, I'm going to go curse him. Angel of the Lord says, hey, you know what? Totally forgive you know, I'm not going to do that. I'm going to head on home. The angel says, no, I don't want you to go home. But here's what I want you to do. I want you to go to the Israelites, and I want you to bless them four times. The God of this universe has asked you to bless them. And so he shows up, and the king of the Moabites is going, here we go, here we go, curse them. And he blesses them four times. The king goes, I told you to curse them, and you bless them four times. And so in that moment, Balaam is like, well, I don't want to lose out on what I'm going to be paid here. And so he says, to the king of the Moabites, send your women to the Israelites to seduce them. To seduce the men of Israel. And in essence, Balak, he's saying, Balak, if you can't curse them, then corrupt them. And ever since then, Balaamism has been known as a teaching that attacks the separation and sanctification that God expects his people to maintain. Simply put, we're to be different. We're to actually look different as followers of Jesus in the world around us, not just like them. In short, the doctrine of Balaam was teaching that Christ followers could embrace the world's message and teaching while maintaining the Christian message and teaching. Basically, have your cake and eat it too. Alexander McLaren says, Balaamism is the attempt to make the best of both worlds, the earthly world and the spiritual world. It's like trying to run with the hare and hunt with the hounds. You can't do both. The Nicolaitans taught the same basic thing. They believed that sinning was actually a good thing because it gave God another chance to forgive you. Like, I love it. God's a good God, so we ought to sin and give God a chance to be a good God. It makes sense. No, it's called sinning against his grace. And this led to them happily participating in the immorality of that city. They went to church on Sunday and then attended lavish banquets in the temple of Zeus on Monday. Banquets that were a form of worshiping Zeus as they ate the meat of animals that were sacrificed to Zeus and became involved in sexual immorality. Let me define sexual immorality on the basis of what the Bible says. Sexual immorality is anything sexual that happens outside of the marriage relationship between a husband and a wife. That's sexual immorality. We don't get to take our cue from anything but, but what God says it is. And the church was trying to take its cue from the world instead of its cue from God. And so Jesus is showing up and saying it doesn't work. So the pressure was on. If you don't blank, the culture will blank. And some of the people in that church was giving in to that pressure. They worship Jesus on Sunday and the devil the rest of the week. I grew up with that church culture. It doesn't work. I'm tired of it. It's got to be every day over one day. This has to impact the way we live, not just on Sunday, but every day. They were trying to play both sides, and as a result, the church in Pergamum was becoming like the world, believing the world's messages, following the world's truths. So instead of transforming their culture as salt and light, they were letting the culture transform them. Does that sound like the church today on some level? Not that church can't be that church. This type of compromise is in the church today, in the world, but not of it. Listen, that's not saying that we, we don't go to the world. The world is our mission field, but we are not the world's mission field. 
See, it's okay for a boat to be in water. You're in trouble when water's in the boat. And that's what we're talking about. That's the depth of this whole thing. It's the enemy in the gates warning. It's Jesus saying, don't take the Trojan horse into the city. I know it might look beautiful, but there's danger in it. Oh, no, we got this. It's good. And you pull it into the city, and the gates close, and the lights go off, and the soldiers come out in the darkness, and they open the gates, and they let the enemy in, and you know the story of Troy. And God, Jesus is trying to say, not my church, because I am building my church, and the gates of hell won't prevail against it. James 4.4, 4, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world is an enemy of God. Why is that? Because you can't serve two masters, gang. The Bible says you will love one and you will hate the other. And so it's just saying, you adulterous people, don't you know friendship with the world is hatred towards God? Here's what it simply says. If you're going to choose the world, if you're going to choose the counterfeit, then you're actually rejecting what's real. It's rejection. Do you know why people go to hell? They don't go to hell because of sin. They go to hell because of rejection of God. That's what sends us to hell. Not the place God wants us to go. He's not a hell-sending God. He made it for Satan and his angels. But he's also a God of justice. Rejection of God. Why? Why is that so huge? Why would that send you to hell? Because God's word is about human flourishing. When we, when we dive into this, we need to understand this is good news. This isn't wrecking your party. This is good news. This isn't to make your life horrible. This is good news. This isn't just to tell you how bad you are. This is about human flourishing. We crack the pages to be able to say this is how Jesus invites us to live and live abundantly. And so he says, hey, there's some things in here that you need to steer clear of because they'll cost you if you go there. But boy, there's a whole lot that I have for you that I don't want you to miss out on. This is human flourishing. And so anything that is attacking human flourishing is an ultimate rejection of God. And so Jesus is saying, don't go there. Jesus simply is saying, they profess a faith they don't practice. They profess a faith they don't practice. Jesus is talking to those who say, yes, I'm a Christian, but they live contrary to the teachings of God's word. We don't get to edit his word. We just get to obey it. Because he loves us. Sometimes it's not that we don't know the truth. It's just that we don't like it. Or we think there's something better. And Jesus is going, really? Better? And so we say, I'm a Christian, but I'm going to believe what I want to believe and do what I want to do. And the people of Pergamum were saying, we like that version of Christianity because it doesn't command us to repent. It tolerates our lifestyle. And not only does it tolerate our lifestyle, but it affirms our lifestyle. And in this form, the church doesn't exist to glorify God. God exists to give us permission to do whatever we want. And if we don't have a God who gives us permission to do whatever we want and interpret truth the way we want, then he's not going to be our God. Guess what? You not choosing him to be your God doesn't keep him from being God. He is God. Jesus says, to live like this, maybe one foot in and one foot out, 
choosing what you want and choosing what you don't want, it's unacceptable. And can I help you understand what, when he's saying that, what he means? Because again, I think we have to keep correcting this in our head. Sometimes when we hear that term, Jesus says it's unacceptable, we hear this, Jesus says it's unacceptable. Jesus never makes that face. I don't think he makes that face. When he's saying it's unacceptable, please, let me, let me. He's saying, it's unacceptable. Like, why? Why would you choose it? I mean, I got more than you could ever imagine. I got love that's unconditional. I got life to the fullest. Why would you settle for something that costs you? It's unacceptable. I'll come back to you in a second. <laughs> we look too much like the world we live in. In our social media, you can't tell the difference. In our behavior, you can't tell the difference. And you can't impact the world you reflect. You can't. We can't give hope to people when we live hopeless. Today in Pergamum, there's no church. At some point, the world won. Doesn't mean the gospel lost. It just means in that city, there's no church. What would keep us, or what might we want to do in these moments? I'm gonna give you four things, and I'm gonna close this out by inviting us to do what Jesus asked us to do. So, when I read these four things, at the end of these four things, don't go, okay, that's good, we're done. A little bit more. Okay, I'm warning you. I just gave you a warning. But I want you to hear these four things because in response to, to this, this is how we not be that church. First one is check your identity. Is your identity shaped by culture or is it shaped by Christ? Is it shaped by culture or is it shaped by Christ? Because when it's shaped by culture, it will never measure up. It will always be let down. And that may look a bunch of different ways to you, your identity. There may be lies that are impacting you. There may be sin that's impacting you. There may be things that are just impacting you, people. But Jesus says, if you let me shape your identity, nothing can shake you because your identity is shaped by me and nothing else. So check your identity. What's shaping your identity? The culture, the world, or Jesus? Check your identity. Second one, choose your worship. Choose your idol, if you will. What will you worship? Because you worship something. What gets the most time and attention in your life, your thoughts, your actions, that thing is what you worship. That's what sits on the throne of your life and gets your worship. Here's the deal. Some of us think that Jesus can be a value-add proposition to what we already worship. He's just an add-on, and so he shares the throne of everything else. What you've got to understand is Jesus will not share his throne. He won't. He will let you have those things there. Because that throne is for him. Not because he wants to run your fun, but because he wants to lead your life. That's good. It's really good. Check your identity. Choose your idol. Challenge your doctrine. <laughs> what you've chosen to believe because it might be convenient. Do you only believe it because you like it? Because it feels better? Because it answers the question for you? Because it makes sense to the way in which you're living instead of the way you're living making sense to the word. Check your doctrine. The reason you believe, it has to come from the truth of God's word, which is life. It's good news. It's human flourishing. 
It's what's best for us because most of the things we choose to believe outside of the word of God make us less human, not more human. Human flourishing. Check your identity. Choose your worship. Challenge your doctrine. And lastly, you ready for this? This is a good one. My favorite. Call yourself out. Call yourself out. Are you professing a faith you don't practice? Stop it. Don't do it. It's a waste of time. Why would you do it? Why would you profess a faith and still just live in this? When you can profess a faith and live in the abundance of everything God has, good and bad. It's Jesus. It's promise. It's godly character. It's all these amazing things. Not that church. When the world tells us to chase the American dream, we say no. You're saying, what do you mean, the American dream, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness? Yep, it promises a happiness that doesn't exist. And most people, when they get to the end of that upward mobile climb, the top of the ladder, they're found wanting, and they're hurting, and they've lost their marriage, and they've lost their family, and they've lost it all. It's not helpful. Jesus says, follow me. My way is downward. If you want to be great in my kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. It's actually not about you. It's about me. We say no to the American dream. When the world tells us to believe in ourselves, we say no. That's stupid. Why would we do that? Deep inside of me, I don't even know my heart, and I have desires that war against myself. Some days I feel this, some days I feel this. Why would I believe in that? When Jesus says, huh, believe in me. Follow me. That's a lie that's crept into the church. You gotta get rid of that stuff. Because Jesus is coming with truth. When the world tells us you're enough, you, you can do it. You're enough. Tell them no. Because if you could believe in yourself and if you were enough, we don't need Jesus. And oh my Lord, we need Jesus. The truth is, he is enough. We will never be enough. The best version of you will never compare to the worst version of you with Jesus. And when the world tells us we are blank or we can't this or we should this, we simply say, no, I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Not that church. We declare in this moment our repentance of anything like that because Jesus said, repent. Repent of your sin or I will come to you suddenly and fight against them. That's us with the sword of my mouth. Those who would choose the counterfeit. Change your mind. Be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Repentance begins in the mind. You say, what, have I, what I've been thinking, it's wrong. I'm done believing in myself. I'm going to believe in God. What I've been excusing or explaining away is inexcusable. I need to stop fighting God and surrender and trust him. Forgive me, God, for choosing this world over you, knowing that in you and you alone is fullness of joy. Forgive me for trading a life of courage and boldness for the easy way. Forgive me for selling out to that which can't satisfy and doesn't reflect the goodness and greatness of God. Repentance is an amazing gift that God gives. It's an opportunity to stop walking away from Jesus and start walking with Jesus. <laughs> so Jesus says he's going to come and war against them with the sword of his mouth. The word of God is living and active, sharper than a double-edged sword. Jesus is saying, the weapon I've chosen to do battle against you is the scriptures. It's the truth of God's word. So I'm bringing truth to the lies. And I'm bringing truth to the sin. And that comes with conviction. And it's laying it down. And he says, I'm bringing, bringing truth to what you are. You're a child of God. A new creation. That's what he's doing. He's coming. So we repent. 
My last question to you. The real issue here is how you choose to see Jesus. Because a lot of times for us, we choose to see our stuff and the stuff we enjoy and want and long for that has nothing to do with God that the world has convinced us is good as an equal comparison to Jesus or even greater. And I would tell you, man, they can break all they want. It doesn't compare. How big is your picture of Jesus? Because he's, he's not just the Galilean that walked the earth with some good teachings. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's the bright and morning star. He says to you this morning, I know. He sees exactly what's going on. He is the crucified. He is the risen. He is the Lord. He is the God. He is God. He is Savior. He is Jesus who rules and reigns over all the people's times and places and churches. And he keeps getting better because we keep discovering. And so we declare that we will be the church that models Jesus and only Jesus. And we declare this morning that we will be the church that invites this culture to look like Jesus instead of trying to make Jesus look like this culture. And we declare that when it comes to compromise, we are not that church. And we declare that we are a church that will always look different than this world, whose way is up when our way is down. Jesus said, if you want to be the greatest in my kingdom, learn to be a servant of all. And so here's my promise to you. Not mine, his. Verse 17, to everyone who is victorious, who presses through, who walks away, who embraces Jesus, who claims him as their own, children of the most high God, to everyone who is victorious, I will give some of the manna that has been hidden away in heaven. Jesus saying, I will be your source and all you need. And I will give to each one a white stone, and on that stone will be engraved a new name that no one understands except the one who receives it. Why? Because your sin is taken away, and the new has come. And so the old name is gone, and the new name is given. That's what he's saying. Woo! I think we can believe that. I think we can believe that. He will be enough. He will make us new. And so he says... Anyone with ears to hear must listen to the Spirit and understand what He's saying to the churches. You will not know what to do without the Holy Spirit. So in this moment before we go, I'm going to ask you to do something. Have ears. The Holy Spirit's here. And you can only know by the Holy Spirit. And So here's the question we would ask the Holy Spirit today. Every one of us who follow Jesus, where am I taking my cues from the world and the culture instead of Jesus? And we're going to let God reveal those areas because some of them we're not even aware of. And so in this moment, over this next minute, I'm going to invite you to grow your picture of Jesus because as your picture of Jesus grows, those things that God is about to to reveal will feel like generic cookies that you're going to walk away from in the power of the Holy Spirit. So God, in these moments, as we process these things, Holy Spirit, reveal the things where we take our cue from the world, make them clear, make them obvious. May we be serious about this moment because you said, repent or I'm coming suddenly. And I pray immediately we will be changed in our thinking about these things and see you as the most precious thing to behold in this world.
I invite you to stand with me this morning. We're going to close with a picture of a God who is big. And everything else in this world pales, pales in comparison to that God. Sing this with us. The splendor of a king Clothed in majesty Let all the earth rejoice All the earth rejoice He wraps himself in light darkness tries to hide, it trembles at his voice, trembles at his voice, how great is our God, sing with me, how great is our God, and oh, we'll see how
left and why we would ever choose anything in this world over you. I pray that our picture of you would grow. I pray that what would inform our life would be less of this world and this culture and every bit of you. I pray that we would be a church that doesn't compromise and that champions the cause of Christ in such a way that it informs our culture instead of our culture informing us. Protect us in Jesus' name. And we will be that, church, through your strength and your power alone. And may you be glorified because of the goodness and greatness of God. We say amen. 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 Let's give God a hand today. We love you. We are praying for you. And may you be the church that God's called us to be in this world every day. We love you. Have an incredible week.